0: The Enter Sadmen Podcast, every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Enter Sadmen Podcast. Welcome to all of you. It's good to have your company. Mark here with Steve and Richard as usual. This is the Enter Sadmen Podcast, the only metal podcast in the world that reviews rates and ranks. Every album that you should own, track by track Uh, we're assembling a definitive list of the best and worst by definition heavy metal and hard rock albums and although we've called it hard rock and heavy metal it also includes progressive rock and pretty much anything you would expect to find in a list of the best rock albums in the world so there you go that's the premise we review three albums every week they're determined by a theme that is decided by a random uh, tombola, that we've called the Tico Torres Tombola of Topics and Theme. This week, Tico pulled out, last time out, he pulled out Things That Swim, after a very long and protracted decision-making process. Steve, you decided on?
2: Um, so, yeah,
1: my floating
2: option for um, for this episode was um, Flotsam and Chetsam, um and their second album, No Place for Disquest. And the only other one i thought of because it was hard i mean genuinely trying to hit the brief i thought anything by great white and that's as far as i got and i thought actually i don't want to play any great white so i'll go uh, I'll, I'll see if i can squeeze some floating through and i thought i'd got away with it until you kicked off but then but then you saw you saw the
1: light <laughs> well i would like to point out that only half of your band actually floats the rest of it is on a beach somewhere which half jetsam isn't it no idea No idea. I think Flotsam is the stuff that's in the water and Jetsam's stuff on the beach. Anyway, (laughs) there you go. Richard, you're the only one who hit the brief, which makes a change for you.
3: Yeah, I thought I'd do that for a change. Yeah, absolutely. And I chose, uh, I think, something that you, you, Mark, (laughs) predicted I might do, but I couldn't help it. Um, So, uh, yes, it's a tuna, it's a fish, uh, and it's the awfully titled, but... uh, One of my favourite albums from Ario's Speedwagon, entitled You Can Tune a Piano But You Can't Tune a Fish.
1: I I have laboured for uh, five decades under the impression that a Portuguese man-of-war was a ray. Actually, it turns out it's a jellyfish that has no means of propelling itself anywhere. So my floating thing was man-of-war's Kings of Metal. And if you want to find out... um, all of the other stuff that we've been doing, you know, this is episode 44. There are 43 episodes uh, for you to discover if you haven't already. You can do that on all of the normal podcast platforms, Spotify, uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google uh, Podcasts and all the rest. And you can find the companion blogs that we write for each episode on our website, along with the Hall of Fame, which is now many, many albums strong. I can't multiply uh 44 by 3 but somebody will Um, but yeah enter sadmen.co.uk so before we kick off with this week's review we want to give a listen to the three albums that we've been immersing ourselves in for the last seven days
0: as soon as you are able
1: these albums in the order of chronological release so the the oldest album is the one that gets reviewed first and by definition the youngest album is the one that gets reviewed last so we're starting in the 1970s with richard's choice you can tune a piano but you can't tune a fish
0: opening album sleeve notes
3: yeah so uh, rio speedwagon's awfully titled album uh, was their seventh studio album uh, but the one i suppose that really announced them on the scene uh, properly. It was the first album of theirs that went top 30 and really marked sort of their entry into starting to lead the whole emerging AOR kind of genre. Uh, REO, well, they're, they're named after a flatbed truck, a fire engine, um, formed in 1968 by Neil Doughty and Alan Grazer. And they plugged away uh, you know, several albums through the 1970s. Uh, But it was then this uh, released on March 16th, 1978, that really did propel them towards stardom, which, of course, they reached massively a few years later with high infidelity. Uh, Recording-wise, it was recorded in the back end of 77, early part of 1978, um, recorded if you're interested at Sound City Studios Los Angeles, Record Plant Studios in Los Angeles, and Paragon Studios in Chicago. Uh, It's a short album, nearly 34 minutes in length, and it was uh, produced by Kevin Cronin and Gary Richrath, along with Paul Grupp and John Boylan. Uh, The personnel, well, it's the, I guess, classic uh, Aria Speedwagon lineup that would go on to do things like High Infidelity, which is Kevin Cronin on vocals and guitars, Gary Richrath on guitars, Neil Doughty keyboards, piano, Hammond, organ, Moog synthesizer, all that kind of stuff. Bruce Hall on bass. This was his first album, first uh, studio album with uh, Aria Speedwagon and Alan Grazer on drums. Didn't do much in the UK. Don't think it charted, really got anywhere, but it uh, got to 29, uh, number 29 in the Billboard charts and has gone on to sell at least double Platinum, so two odd million plus copies worldwide. So not too shabby, I guess. Nine tracks um they make up that 33 and a bit minutes and they are roll with the changes time for me to fly running blind blazing your own trail again and sing to me on side one and side two with lucky for you do you know where your woman is tonight and the unidentified flying tuna trot and then the very last track is say you love me or say good night yeah i did for me um yeah, a bit of hit and miss, but it's still a very special album for me. Uh, a couple of the albums, a couple of the tracks still give me goosebumps, um, and uh, listening to it just uh, just makes me happy. So, yeah, so you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish.
1: Gents, your opening remarks, please. Uh, well, I'll go first. <sighs> Do you know it's never a chore listening to R.A. Speedwagon, is it? I-, I think this is an album of two very distinctive halves. I think the the first half is better, considerably better than the second half, but the second half isn't bad. I I, I came away from this, I think in the same way that I came away from having forensically listened to High Infidelity, which Snell I know much better or knew much better at the time, really just kind of slightly awestruck by Gary Richrath particularly, but also Neil Doughty, who really is let loose on this album in a way that he wasn't so much on High Infidelity, or I think Nine Lives, from memory I haven't listened to Nine Lives for a while, but there is a lot of keyboard in this, and actually I think it, it, adds, it adds to it, because it, it it appears in places where it is absolutely suited to the track, so it's not, it's not one of these albums where you think, oh yeah, the keyboard player is kind of contractually obliged to play a bit in every song, it, it's actually really, it's, it's clearly a really well planned, really well cons- thought out and considered album it's notable that Cronin and Richrath don't write together very much mm-hmm. and for me at least and, and they haven't on you know on any album that I had a quick look back and they, they have the odd song I think on most albums where they do collaborate but broadly speaking with a bit of contributions from other members of the bands and, and external writers it's either Cronin or it's Rich Richrath and the two songs on this album that they do collaborate on I think are considerably weaker than the ones they've done that they wrote themselves so interesting really interesting album but like you richard it puts me in my happy place
2: it's it's an interesting album I, I i was i wasn't as bowled over with high infidelity as you were and so i knew i wouldn't i just knew that i wouldn't be as bowled over with this as you were but um it's one of those albums that's absolutely made by the opening track which is just genius one of my favorite ever a out of tenner if ever there was one so yeah there's some so, so there's some great melodies on here there's some great tunes there's some great writing but boy it gets flat those last three tracks I just can't get any sense of satisfaction out of those at all when the Chas and Dave element of it kicks in it just doesn't it just doesn't do it for me but I love side one I think there's some great stuff on here and I have thoroughly uh, listen roll with the changes I'll listen to any day of the week and and, and that's absolutely true. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's been a good listen, and I've liked some tunes a hell of a lot more than others.
3: The first track, "Roll with the Changes," fantastic, fantastic opener. Kevin Cronin on piano, big big beats from Alan Gratzer, and then into this absolute signature Gary Richrath riff. I mean, it's up tempo, it's upbeat, it's positive, it's energetic. Uh, Cronin's singing at his best, and it is. It's um, an absolute speed beboggin classic
1: from the moment kevin Cronin opens his mouth you're immediately transported to a happy place almost instant this is a enormous sweep of big sky americana with captivating hook lines and rich rats guitar just dancing over the top of it never intrusive always just kind of supporting the the vocal um, the vocal riff that's going through it and that, that piano-guitar combo, it's just glorious. It is a glorious, glorious song. And, um, I mean, it all goes a bit Hollywood Nights at one point and which is not a bad thing. Um, yeah, it goes a bit Bob Seger, but that's fine. That's why I like Bob Seger. Um, and then there's there's this amazing kind of Neil Doughty's organ pops up, if you'll excuse the expression, and kind of just um, does this, peps up this sort of circular outro my only criticism of this track is i find the outro of other than the the organ on it quite repetitive and a little tedious
2: yeah no that's really interesting because that's the point isn't it i think i don't know i just love that kind of i love that that repeat that repetition because they've got the it's not like a duelling guitar isn't it but i presume it's the same guitar isn't it but it just sounds like there's sort of two of them going at it and then the choral work comes in and it's big and it just rocks and it rolls and it rolls and it rocks and it's just carried on all the way through at that kind of tempo. It's just uh, no, no, no. I love the end. I think it, I think it's the perfect AOR rocker on every level. And if it if it lasted another two minutes on that outro, I'd be happy.
1: Yeah, it it is just that it's just that circular mm. end, mm-hmm. um, which which I find tedious in the same way that I found should I follow my head or my heart, tedious. Okay. Because by the time he's asked that question 86 times, I'm like, Kev, just shut up. <laughs> shut up about, yeah.
3: No, I'll never tell her t- the ending. And uh, it's an absolute corker live because of it. Good, proper sing-along. And it gives way to uh, track two, which is uh, another Cronin-composed ditty called time for me to fly Roll with the changes was the first single off the album got to number 58 time for me to fly was the second well it was, Steve says about Cronin's songwriting coming of age here this I think is probably the first song where he really really nailed the power ballad uh, and you can see the seeds sown here for future songs like sort of, keep on loving you and take it on the run uh, it's you know it's a it's a breakup song breakup ballad. Kevin Cronin's on 12-string guitar. And uh, the thing I love about this song is the the power that comes in with the the drums and the bass Um, and then the layering between Cronin's 12-string, Richrath's guitar and quite a nice restrained solo from Gary Richrath on this one. I love this. It's this still uh, makes the hiss on the back of my neck stand up.
2: This is perfect and this is what i love about um cronin's songwriting if i've got one quibble are you boys looking at this now on wikipedia click on the link to the single for time for me to fly and please explain that single cover picture on the right hand side because they need docking marks for that what is that (laughs) (laughs) if anyone if anyone out there can explain what they were thinking then i'd love to know because it's just laughable anyway that that catastrophe aside, I love the song.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not as taken with it as the two of you are. <laughs> it was it was commercially underwhelming, wasn't it? It it didn't really do very much in the in the charts, mm. and yet has become kind of one of their big signature tunes. It's it's one of only two tracks on this album that, as far as I can tell, that they they still retain. Um, Rob the changes being the other one, that they retain in the live set. So clearly. Yeah, there's a huge amount of affection for it from uh, REO Speedwagon fans. Mm. Um, I, I find it's just got, it's a lovely melody. It gets a solid score. Of all the tracks on side one, it's my least favourite. I find it's got an air of melancholy about it that I find quite draining. I felt that it needed just a bit more, the second track just needed a bit more, a bit more oomph to it. Ah, interesting,
3: interesting. I'm fascinated to know what, you to think of, um, of of track three then, because uh, so track three is is running blind. The, as a song is, you know, much more up tempo, it's heavier. I mean, this is uh, written by Gary Richrath with the uh, Debbie McCrom, I mean, really dominated by I think, uh, Paul's bass and Richrath's guitar. It, it's a track I've never warmed to.
1: Uh, I really like this. This is good old fashioned rock and roll that RIO Speedwagon do really really well. I think it's got that sort of that sensibility about it that infuses all of the good stuff that RSB Wagon do, I think. And um, my quibble with this track, is it just me and my ears? But it feels like it's got a very live sound, which just jars a little with me, Mm. if I'm being absolutely honest. But I like it, really like it, Mm. yeah.
2: So I'm I'm with Rich. This is the weak link on side one by some distance. I think it's fine as as a piece of solid rock is it great no is it listenable too yeah um it's fine
3: okay well let's get on to uh, track four then and um i mean for me normal service has resumed with blazing uh, your own trail so again you've got Cronin on his 12 string um i mean it's pretty cheesy isn't it but um the the hooky single on chorus um, the I mean, a much bigger, Rich richer solo, really soaring solo from him on this, and yeah, just lie back and with a big grin on your face.
1: I've I've spent a lot of time this week doing bits of research, trying to find out where where Kevin Cronin's life just fell apart that gave him the kind of the seed of inspiration for <laughs> yeah. songs like this. I'm thinking there must, something must have happened to the man, but. looks like it looks like he's been wonderfully happy all of his life so i don't know where it comes from but there is something ridiculously autobiographical and honest about this stuff that he writes i think and i I don't know it's a you you say it, it kind of makes you happy richard this for me is like a the musical equivalent of a big bowl of endorphins because it's it's like a clarion call, isn't it? So anyone who just feels a little bit hopeless and a little bit lost—that actually, if you forge your own way in life, it'll all be okay. I just think it's an absolutely brilliant song. Side one ends
3: with um, another Rich Rath composition, uh, quite a short song, two and a half minutes or so, uh, called "Sing to Me," which I really love. Uh, uh, it's it, it's slower, but because it's a, yeah, I think it's got a bit more body to it. I love Gary Richrath's guitar uh, throughout this. I like the way Cronin sings it. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? He's, you're absolutely right about them being very separate songwriters. And can Cronin sing a Richrath song as well as he can sing a Cronin song? On this one, uh, I think he does do that. It, it's a bit more understated, after after his vocals in the, the previous song. But it, it's a really nice fitting end to the side. And I think, in particular, the lift on the whole chorus, the 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 harmonies through the chorus are superb.
1: Need to remember this is Cronin's second go around with R.E.S. Speedwagon, isn't it? And he yep. left originally because of quotes musical differences. And I wonder, given how separate he and Richrath are as writers, whether that's I don't know. Maybe that's the musical difference. But this. I think this is an absolutely tremendous song. What, what a way to close side one. I mean, it's just, they just keep coming, don't they?
2: I was actually looking on, um, uh, what's it called? Setlist, setlist.fm, just to see, you know, I, I was thinking, well, this would be a crowd favourite and, and apparently they've played it. I know there's kind of flaws in their totting up process, but they're more of an authority than anything else we've got. And that they reckon that Singing to Me has been played live three times compared to Roll with the Changes, for example, which they'd wrapped up. Eight hundred times. Yeah, it's fascinating,
3: isn't it? <laughs> because I think it would be absolutely amazing, life. Okay, great finish to side one. Let's uh, let's start side two then, um, with the uh, track six. Uh, lucky for you, always thought the start was weird—vocal uh, bits and finger clicks—and I, I never quite worked out why the hell they uh, they did that. So, if anybody does know uh, that's listening, then uh, please do enlighten me. Good, promising riff from from Rich Rath. Reasonably up tempo start, but after all his vocal brilliance on side one, I really do feel that vocally this is pretty poor by comparison.
2: Yeah, echo that. I mean, the rot the rot's starting to set in now, isn't it? And it's um, and this is this is the picker side too, as far as I'm concerned. And there's bits of it I do like. I, I don't like that sort. Of, there's a Chas and Dave piano section, which, thank the Lord, is mercifully brief. Get, suddenly goes a bit fair ground about halfway through it, it is an odd one and i've not warmed to it particularly um, you know how many listens do you give it i don't know
1: this really does feel to me a bit like the rest of the side actually that it's just there to make up the numbers
3: Let, let's move on to, to track seven uh, track two side two which is you know do you know where your woman is tonight rich uh, richard's composition um i guess a bit of a southern feel to it it's fine I've written Uneventful, probably Inoffensive. Uh, I mean, I I, I don't dislike it, but it's not up there again with the the highs of uh, of, of Side One. On this, Gary Truss' lead riff's a bit lacklustre, again, compared to what he's been doing elsewhere on on the album. Um, Nice harmonised vocals, I guess, would be a highlight. Yeah, it's pleasant, but not a lot more than that for me.
1: Well, the last time I heard this song, it was the title track of the album of the movie Every Which Way But Loose, starring Clint Eastwood and an orangutan, and that's where it should have stayed. Really, I mean, it's not—it wasn't that song, but it sounds exactly like it. Do you know what? I really want to dislike this, but and I kind of do, but I also find it slightly hypnotic and charming. So there are bits that I really like about it, and there are bits that I really don't like about it. And I suppose that in the end, that makes it the musical equivalent of Michael Bolton's hairstyle.
2: <laughs> I've just got, musically it's fine, it's just it's just forgettable, isn't it? It's just a bit, yeah, bland.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's it's fair enough. Right, track eight, an instrumental called the Unidentified Flying Tuner Trot. So those who know Aria Speedwagon will know that One of the real live staple of theirs is a a track called The Flying Turkey Trot, which they recorded for an album two years earlier of their R.E.O. album in 1976. And it's, yeah, it's quite good fun. So I I think they tried to reinvent that here. I mean, it's got some boogie. It's fine. I mean, it opens well. I think it opens really well, but I'm not quite sure it really goes
1: anywhere. Well, I've written down... It's not Orion. There, there's this kind of jazz rock funk thing feel to it, isn't there? It feels like it ought to be in the soundtrack and the original soundtrack to a black exploitation movie. Half expects Shaft to walk round a corner at some point. Uh, Neil Doughty gets another chance to show his chops on the old Joanna, which um yeah, it's fine. But yeah, I, it's not a great moment. Um it's probably the weak weak spot in the album for me
2: they did this to me on high infidelity they went a bit astral at the back end and yeah (laughs) it's just it's just jazz rock isn't it done averagely and um yeah not for me yeah i think
3: that's fair okay so let's move to the final track which is say you love me or say Goodnight," which i've always really loved um upbeat big powerful finish Good thumping drums. Kevin Cronin's back on form, belting it out. It's got a fantastic guitar and piano solo, and then that sort of hooky sing along chorus. And uh, for me, this is <laughs> this is Aria Speedwagon's "Paradise by the Dashboard Light." And I believe you can sing one to the tune of another.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i do not thought of that you you probably can. Yeah, it's another it's another rock and roll romp, isn't it? written to a tried, trusted and tested uh, REO Speedwagon formula, and for me that just makes it sound oddly enough a bit formulaic <laughs> I think there are better examples of them doing this kind of stuff on other albums and there's nothing wrong with it and it's you know, it's it's a nice up-tempo way to end the album, but I don't get excited about it. Saxophone touches are quite nice,
2: a bit too much piano for me. Lots of good guitar work in there, inevitably. He's a good guitarist um he said patronizingly i mean everyone knows that don't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's okay yeah it's, it's better than the two that went before it put it that way that's damned by faint praise isn't
3: it all right well let's have a bit of praise and a bit of uh slagging off then as you uh give me your highs and lows gentlemen
2: so the weak one for me is uh do you know where your woman is tonight um and yeah by a zillion miles. It's on umpteen of my playlists, and um, Roll With The Changes will always be there.
1: Yeah, we're in the same ballpark, because my two lowest-scoring tracks on the album are also Do You Know Where you Women Is Tonight and The Unidentified Flying Tuna Trop. Um, I've actually got them the other way around, so my low point is where you know, Do You Know Where you Woman Is Tonight. And uh, nobody in their right mind listening to this album is going to get anywhere beyond Roll well, With The Changes as the high point, I don't think. So for me,
3: I'm running blind. I I just still just can't get on with. It's weird. It's weird. And for me, Blazing Your Own Trail just shaves. Roll with the changes. And we're going to accelerate through a whole decade to 1988. And the second release, is it, I think, by Flotsam and Jetsam, No Place for Disgrace.
2: Steve, take us through this one.
0: Opening album sleeve notes.
2: Mm, Sure is. And the key word there is accelerate, because that's what we're doing now. It's, um, yeah, only on End to Sad Men do you get a juxtaposition between REO Speedwagon and Flotsam and Jetsam. And that's what makes this show so damn good. Um, So, yeah, this is their second album, two years on from their, well, inspired debut album, Doomsday for the Deceiver. And, you know, it's nice to have the boys back. It's good to see that they brought the same level of um, intensity and energy and speed. And aggression that was ringing in our ears two years before. And they still won't compromise on track length either. Um, seven of these nine numbers are five minutes plus. But the difference is they've all been really well arranged. I mean, that's one of the big differences between this and Doomsday. You know, I love Doomsday. We've reviewed it on this show before. I adore it. It's one of my favourite albums. So the other differences between this and that, of course, is there's no Jason Newstead on bass. He's since been um, seconded by Metallica. Um, although he did leave some writing credits on this one, they're onto a major label now, in this case, Electra. Um, and Brian Slagle had been replaced behind the decks by Bill Metoya, who had engineered their debut and would go on to produce two or three more of their albums going forward. Um, but the big difference for me, and don't mock me, in fact, we, we, we've touched on this, and hopefully you'll agree, and you, well, maybe you won't. Sophistication is the word I was going to (laughs) use. The look on your face suggests otherwise. Listen, you can hear hear flotsam and jetsam in here and thank fuck for that. But they've grown up. They've moved up a notch. Um, I mean, you'd hope they would have done, but that can never be guaranteed. So you've still got the beast in them, um, but I just think there's more clarity, more precision, more accuracy in what they do. What you have to remember, of course, is they had bugger all money in their pocket the first time they went into the studio, precious little time, and still came out with an album that nonsensically got a 6K review from Kerrang. So they had more time, money, backing, and everything for this. So you'd, you'd imagine it would be more accomplished than it is. But does accomplished mean better? Well, I'll ask you boys in a minute. I'm not sure, because I think this is a very much an album of two halves. I think side one is just pure dynamite, and side two definitely has one or two weak, weaker links on it Everything on here that any Flotsam and Jetsam fan would love, and I am one, um, so I'm generally very happy with even with the sort of slightly less impressive moments on this. Um, but it's it's still a behemoth. It's it's still a gigantic album. You know that they had plenty to get wrong, and, and and I don't think they did. I think they nailed it. Um, May twenty nineteen eighty eight recorded December to February. As I say, they're on Elektra, although this was released on Roadrunner in Europe. Um, producer, as I say, Bill Matoya with uh, Flotsam and Jetsam at Music Grinder Studios in Hollywood in California. Personnel, still Eric A.K. on vocal, still the twin lead guitarist, Hackett, Edward Carlson and Michael Gilbert, still Kelly Smith on drums. Troy Gregory had come in and took on bass duties. Um, it did chart in the U.S. up in the 100 somewhere, 10 tracker, five on each side, plus a cover, Well, sorry, including a cover. Which they needn't have done. Yeah, I I, I love it. I, I it won't score for me as highly as Doomsday. I think there's a you know half a dozen belting tracks on here, two or three real gems. But I think as a second album, showed an awful lot of maturity, relative maturity, and that you know they could go on and do better things. And their subsequent albums were quite different. So this was a stepping stone to something else. But yeah, I've enjoyed it. Have you two? I have. Yeah, I I haven't enjoyed this. I think it's certainly a step up in
3: songwriting. The so I think they have matured. They discovered changes in tempo, which was a good thing, even though the changes in tempo seem to be fast, slow, fast, or slow, fast, slow, fast, or fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast, uh, slow. There's more controlled power in this, isn't there? As, as I said, I really do like the production. The the, the, the production's really captured the their preciseness and their power, but there are. It's still. There, we'll talk about a few songs, but it's, it's sort of still classic. Uh, Flotsam and jetsam, where it, it, it sounds like Eric A.K. is hanging on for dear life <laughs> <laughs> of the thing that's speeding on in front of him. It's grown on me. It's grown on me through the, the, this period of, of listening to it, and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, good. You'll have loved it, Mark.
1: One of you. You you're love a riff oh i do love a riff and there are plenty of them on this we lost saw flotsam and jetsam in episode six corner mosh and <clears throat> i described the uh that album i think as or i described them as sort of being a bit sort of victims of some gauche giddiness um so sort of that exuberance that you get from a young band in the studio and it's great you yeah, know that's that's kind of what makes the the genre in all sorts of ways you described at the time if memory serves i haven't gone back to l- listen to it again but i think you described and jetson's style steve as fast faster and fucking fast that was it and nothing much has changed um you know it is more controlled it is a massive step up i think from where they were with doomsday uh there is money in this and i i, I was thinking about this I, which is odd, because I don't spend a lot of my life thinking about Flotsam and Jetson, but I have over the last seven days or so. And I wonder, I just wonder, was Jason Newstead's departure actually a blessing in disguise? Because I, I agree, musically, they, it was a massive part of the band that was lost. But, but nobody had really heard of Flotsam and Jetson before the news broke that you know the new bassists in metallica was jason Newsted. he came from this kind of band that nobody much knew called flotsam and jetson and suddenly the world's attention is on this kind of arizona band that have barely kind of made it out of the states almost um and you know was that attention was the sudden the fact they were in the spotlight and and on people's radar did that attract more money more investment more support i don't know i but it might have worked for them and Newstead's fingerprints are still over this, aren't yeah. they? I think he was involved in three of the songs. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a, a massive step up from where they were. I really enjoyed it.
2: I can't answer that question. I think it's a really, really interesting question. Jason Newstead was a very good. We didn't know at the time Newstead was a, a spectacular bass player, did we? At the first album, we just thought yeah, he's a perfectly good bass player. Right. But you know, Metallica clearly saw something. All well, I would say, he, he's obviously went on to make his, his money and his fame and his fortune, but. It'd have had a far bigger songwriting role if it had stayed put.
1: Yes, that's damn sure. Yeah.
2: So ten tracks on this album, five on each side. The interesting thing about the album cover, and I've scoured it so many times, is it it doesn't actually mention any members of the band on it. That's got to be a that's got to be a print oversight, doesn't it? Anyway, we know who they are. Um, so yeah, five on each side. Kicks off with No Place for Disgrace. Uh, one of the three songs that. Um, Newstead had helped to pen um, before he left Um, and it plays to the album cover which if anyone knows it is a a painting by a renowned US artist called Boris Vallejo um, showing the honourable art of Harakiri, a samurai warrior about to kill himself no place for disgrace that's what the song's about so we're already seeing that they've moved on from you know shagging which is pretty much what the first album was about that's that's a sign of things going forward and yeah it's a pretty no nonsense you know greeting card you know we were flotsam and jetsam and we still are flotsam and jetsam just that we're better produced um because what you get in here is the pace is there again it's you know right off the bat we're going hard we're going fast dazzling interplay of you know riffs and runs and hooks from carlson and gilbert the smith's drum work is ferocious and there's so many interludes in this album. Funnily enough, this one is a bit wishy-washy. I think it's not one of their best. Um, and when they come out of it, they, I think they struggle to re-engage with the track. A lot of people speak incredibly highly of this song, and I just think, given the three that are to come, I like it, but it's not amazing.
1: When I first put this on, and I, 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 I'm i sure I owned this album at some point, and this track back then would have put me off, um, which may be why I no longer have it. And <laughs> why I've never really listened to it because you're left thinking oh more of this yeah that it drops into a couple of nice little interludes and yes they do struggle to re-engage but I think they struggle to re-engage every time they do that through the album
3: yeah I, th- I think the first minute of, of this first track is, is, is awesome I mean it, it, it certainly announces here we are back again to you around the head no, I mean this is the one, one of the ones where it's so fast I mean Eric, sounds, Eric okay, sounds like he's being dragged around behind a Formula One car and <laughs> just trying to keep up with it, singing. About the change of pace, when I first put this on, I thought, all oh, right, so we're just going to have another five minutes of this then. So when it then dropped into that interlude in the middle, I thought, oh, hello. Oh, this could be more interesting, this album now. And I mean, given the subject matter of the album and this song, that's a real melancholy, quiet, peaceful mm. bit fiddle. I think I think that's what they were they were trying to do because I mean it is I mean it's quite whilst a brutal and very sacred act, isn't it? So uh, I, I guess yeah. I hope they were trying to um, give that give that some thought. I would think.
2: Yeah, I mean, on, on the first album, they were more about intros than interludes. If you think about, you know, tracks like Doomsday um, and Metal Shock, they were definitely more about the intro rather than anything happening much in the track. And it's um, it's a bit different this time round. And track two is well, let's just not bother talking about interludes or intros. Let's just talk about the riff. This is Dreams of Death, and this is phenomenal. It's going up a gear. Just a riff. We do have some of those telltale big screams in here from, from Eric A.K. He won't resist. Bear in mind, you know, we love Joey Belladonna. He sings at a level, doesn't he? he sings at a pitch. And, and I've always thought Eric A.K. is kind of that sort of singer. Yeah, I just think this is... It's almost the perfect thrash metal track were it not to be followed by the perfect thrash metal track.
3: You know this is thrash, don't you? <laughs> With this track. Uh, here's the thing. if. Kelly Davis Smith played the drums half the tempo on this track, but with that same speed of guitar over the top of it. I think it would be absolutely awesome because I think the I think the guitar riffs are fantastic. Just having the drums also at that same speed. There's just so much going on. It's all so fast. It would, and as Mark said earlier, on tracks on this album when they do slow it down, particularly the the beats per minute on the drums, the
1: songs still floor you. I think it's a great track. It's really different. When I first heard it, I was kind of mildly comforted because it was different enough that I didn't then feel that we were going to get another 10 tracks that were exactly the same as they'd done two years previously. And that, that turned out to be the case. It's an absolutely relentlessly malevolent riff. running through it isn't it if you were in any doubt that this band had grown up this is the track that answers the question yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah. just moving it forward one track um to N.E. terror so when i first bought this album this was the song this what this is just (sighs) co-written by newstead but also their manager eric braverman who helped out with a lot of the writing they called him the sixth member of the band n e by the way it's simply a play on the word any. That's all it is. It's just any terror. And as I say, this was the track for me. Um, it just blew me away. It's blindingly fast. But within those riffs, there's this incredible stop start to the music and the spitting out of the lyrics at the end of every line. The obligatory midsection, which just chugs like a bastard. And then two or three solos from Carlson and Gilbert. And they'll only ever do, they'll never do one solo in a track. And they'll all do, and they'll both do one each minimum. And that's the case with this. And then they power out. Interestingly, they power out with a bit of um, showing off from Troy Gilbert, showing he's um, a kind of heir to the great man. And then they just smash it. And then, and then it comes all oh, comes back in again, and they absolutely smash it all the way to the line. It is pure electric.
1: You start off, don't you, thinking it's going to be more of the same, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure. There is a point in the album where I'm just thinking, are you contractually obliged to play at 190 beats per minute? Yeah. Is, is there some sort of arrangement that you have with your fans that if you don't hit that speed at some point in every song, they're going to come and hunt you down and kill you? Because there are points where you just think, just just do just do a song at this pace because it'll be different and interesting. Anyway, we'll get on to that. This is, you, you think it's going to be the same, but no, 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 it just gives no, doesn't it, no, to this absolutely humongous riff that just soars its way and chews its way through everything in its path, and it's completely captivating and hypnotic, and and you just you just you're not going, ever going to do anything except sit there with your jaw on the floor and go, "This is just fucking brilliant."
3: This is Iron Maiden on speed, isn't it? Oh. I mean, it, it's uh, this wonderful galloping riff. It's, so you've got this galloping riff, it, the stop starts. There's there's much, much more about this than just just straight line speed. And I think that's what makes this track so different. Right. So I think you know, in this, even the fast, the main riff, it, it, it's, it's just got so much more going on with it. And then the slower section in the middle, it, it just complements it so, so well. It, it, it's been one of, the, one of the ones I've kept
2: going back to. And I keep going back to Escape From Within as well, which is track four. Again, that kind of slow, stripped-back, guitar-led intro that they use a lot on Doomsday, tracks like Metal Shock and Doomsday and Der Fuhrer, they did do that guitar intro, and they do it on this. Um, It's always been part of their armory going forward as well. Um, And there are parts of Escape... uh, Richard, you might smile. There are parts of Escape From Within, because of all the sort of change-ups and the rollbacks in this, I think it's quite Queensryche, I mean, just a fuck site heavier, but it is quite Queensryche in, in some of the song structuring and arranging in that, I think, with this. The other reason I love this is because I'm a massive Lost Prophets fan. I think we're still allowed to talk about them, despite, you know, everything that went on. And the choral vocal section um, in the first half of this song sounds so much like Lost Prophets of so that absolute pomp. It's just glorious, absolutely gorgeous. And then eventually they pick it up and, you know, there's a real sort of, battery feel to the riff you know It's if you want another metallica reference but it's clever i think it's a really clever mature song they'd have misjudged this if they'd have tried this on doomsday i think they'd have misjudged it quite badly clever And such a tune such a tune yeah
3: i agree i got yeah i got Queen's right there's a lot more maturity in the songwriting on this the arrangements the layering and they've slowed it down but they've not lost any of the power but then there's, there's that nice faster break in the middle. So you know swapped it around this time. Um, yeah, really, really good track.
1: What I love about this track is that that riff is always there. Even underneath the acoustic elements of it, it's still there in the background. You just about hear it. And then at various points, it just rises up like this kind of Leviathan and just snaps its jaws on you and takes you with it. Um, yeah, there is. There's a bit of um, Metallica about this, isn't there? Is it Gilbert who takes care of most of the lead work, or is it? No, they, both, or...
2: they share it. Absolutely, they shared it all the way through their careers. They do a solo each.
1: Because the solo in this is absolutely exquisite. Love this song. Yeah. It's it's fade to black, isn't it? The, of course, the point about fade to
2: black is it's the last track on side one, and that's exactly what this should be, because we're
1: about to. I, yeah, should we do this? Because we're going to have to we have to deal with this, aren't we? Well, we are. we dealing with it very, very succinctly.
2: So this is Saturday Night's Alright for Fun. Listen, I was going to say it's not my favourite Elton John song. Like, there's a long list of my favourite Elton John songs. That, that there aren't, and this is, this isn't one of them. And I'm not entirely sure why Flotsam and Jetson did it. And reading interviews, I'm not sure they know either. Apparently, Eric Braverman, their manager, was big on covers, and this was one they could agree on. I mean, that's that's not a ringing endorsement, is it? That's that's just let's do it. The redeeming features, it meets the cover brief in which they've done something with it. it. It's not, you know, they've dropped it by an octave straight away and just gone fucking hard and fast. So, all right, they've given it the F and J treatment and, and you know, amps up, distortion to the max, guitars dominate. Elton wouldn't have done anyone, anything like it. But I just think it's unnecessary. And when you when you, when you you hear the, the forward tracks before it, I just think it's unnecessary. Don't Don't get it.
1: I've written my note here is uh, let me hold on. Oh, yeah, that's it. No, <laughs> just no. <laughs> All right. Credit to them; they've fucked around with the lyrics yeah. and done something different. Well done, lads. Yeah. But this was a shit song when it was released, and yeah. it's still a shit song. Completely unnecessary. He can't sing it. That's no. the other thing. It's too low. It's it's an octave below where mm-hmm. his voice is naturally comfortable. So it's just an absolute shit show from start to finish. Awful song. And it'll bring the album down, which is a real shame.
3: My one word review is not no, it's it's why. (laughs) Yeah. It's different. But it's just so out of place. Often covers are out of place on albums. But this one on this album, yeah, why?
2: It shouldn't be on the album. And then, so we move on... Flip the album over, side two, which is definitely a notch down on side one. I stand by that comment from earlier. Kicks off with a track called Hard On You. J- just before the song, interesting footnote to the writers here. You might see the name Michael Spencer, who was the bass player who replaced Newstead immediately after Newstead went to Metallica. Um, co-wrote three of the songs. This is one of them um, before apparently falling out with someone or another. Went off to become a heating and air conditioning engineer, which he did for almost 30 years before rejoining the band about five years ago. So there you go. That's Michael Spencer, who isn't playing bass on this, but did write this and a couple of others. Um, Song itself, yeah, nice classic guitar intro into, yeah, it's just a chugging stop-start riff. Um, Almost a melodic chorus, which is nice. Um, Usual flotilla of solos done at pace. Um, And the riff, which is good, and they just come back into that there's a formula here, isn't there? And, and this, this is it. This is
3: mid-tempo, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit different. Yeah. I felt there were echoes of uh, things like "Darkest Hour" by Megadeth, and I like okay. it. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think there are some weaker points on on side two, but this isn't one of them for me.
1: There's part of me that thinks, well, if this if this had followed, say, "Escape from Within," would I feel differently about it? But Luckily for this track, it follows Saturday Night's Alright yeah. for Five, and so therefore it sounds absolutely phenomenal in my ears. You know, big slab of kind uh, of metal thrash, but controlled, intense, and full of menace. Still can't quite leave the thrash alone, though, can they? It does. They uh, there's a point which they go, no, can't hold it back anymore. We we'll just have to go for it. We we'll just have to go for it, and then mm-hmm. come back.
2: They do. It's like conditioning, isn't it? They just can't help themselves. And we get and there's more to come. I mean, I live, you die, uh, for example, which is one of the first songs which um, Michael Gilbert brought to the band before Doomsday. So I'm immediately asking myself, didn't make it? If it wasn't good enough for Doomsday, dot dot dot. But anyway, here it is. Kicks off with some nice bass guitar work. I've just put. I've just put. It's a perfectly fine thrash track. Uh, th- with with one or two really nice moments in it, um, the odd pause here, a break there, which which they do a lot. Top screaming from the boy Eric A K, and then yeah, to the finish with more sort of you know those those group vocals that they do, modelled on Twisted Sister amongst others.
1: There's a lot of gang chorus on this album. Yeah, it? it's interesting. A lot of gang chorus. Uh, I've just got I've just written down m- more straightforward than I've heard so far. They pick it back up again, I think, with Misguided Fortune,
2: which, to me, I, I, I love the opening riff. I think it's a classic example of, of where they were a bit, a bit more mature. So you have got this brilliant intro, charges into a superb mid-tempo riff, um, which I really like, and then they head for the accelerator button inevitably. Just when you worry that they're just letting themselves go, they do reintroduce that slower tempo riff again. And they go off in plenty of other directions after that, and some of them don't work. Curious midsection, but
1: it's a crushing exit. I really like this. I mean, I, I don't like it as much as the stuff on slide... Well, most of the stuff on side one, but I really like this. It squeals like a stuck pig being battered to death by Kelly Smith's drum kit. For me, this this is the sound of Flotsam and Jetsam.
3: They mix it up a bit on this, don't they? I like the riff at the start. I do feel at times that eric e. is struggling to keep up when they do let loose the chorus was uh, there's a misguided fortune chorus uh, was a bit anthraxy to me um
2: yeah it, it's it's okay the next track is p a a b which stands for payback's always a bitch this is where i kind of lose a little bit of faith in this band and i love it a bit it's a great opening almost orchestral all sorts of things going on with mandolins and bells we go into the absolute mother of riffs. We go there's a pre-riff into an absolute ferocious main riff. It's joyous, and then just when this band that's in, this is kind of impressed us so much with their mid sections, there's a really insipid one here, and it just takes the top off the track for me, which is a shame because the riff is just to die for, but the mid section they get it wrong in my view.
1: Um. I'm not hearing what you're hearing, but then you're hearing it as a fan. I, I really like this. The end of the album kind of restores my faith a bit. Interestingly, hmm. um, you're starting to lose a bit of faith and I'm starting to gain a bit of faith. Yeah, echo that.
3: I, I like that. It's almost a bit uh, Whom the Bell Tolls at the start, I feel, and I like the heavy riff. I think there's some good bass work, some really good bass work in this song, and, and that, that really elevates it to me. Quite an interesting guitar solo, the dual guitar solo in this. Uh, quite different, but in a, in a, I think, in a good way. So yeah, I'm, I'm with Mark that it's a, it's a lift up towards the end of this album.
2: And it, and it just goes into this really interesting, a moshing instrumental. Who knew? <laughs> called the Jones. Um, I don't know what I don't know why it's called the Jones. I should have checked, but didn't. The interesting thing about the Jones which starts off at a fairly pedestrian pace, mid-tempo if you want to be kind. And you think, because of what's gone before, there's going to be some serious speed changes around the corner, and there are none. The only speed change you actually have on this track is slower, which is almost kind of contrary to everything you know about this band. But the one thing that would have improved this was a vocal. No, no, it
1: wouldn't. (laughs) This is an awesome track. This is brilliant. This is the best track on the album. You know, I said that I, I think they're better when, they, when they're when they more controlled and put it down a bit. For me, this is a perfect track. You've got a riff that is just quite bouncy and, you know, groovy, and then it, it just kind of settles down. They drop, drop it down. They go all a bit instrumental, and then this riff just keeps yeah. coming back. And that, for me, I'm happy. I'm really happy now.
3: Yeah, this... I mean, this is there, Ryan, isn't it? It's, it's. Just, it's it, I love the stop-start. It's super heavy. It was fascinating hearing you to you got you got a, a a proper heavy freak versus a speed freak <laughs> saying which is the better song. I, I I like it. I mean, these riffs are absolutely colossal. I like the stop-start in it. Yeah, I like it when it slows down. They're almost sort of these long guitar notes that almost sound like strings. It's almost orchestral at times. So it's a very good finish. Yeah, a very good finish to the album.
2: Just needs a singer, as I say. Um,
1: (laughs) Highs and lows. Well, I'll go first. Uh, No surprises. Saturday night might be all right for fighting, but it's not all right for this album. So uh, that's my low. And yeah, the Jones. The Jones can come and stay at my house anytime he wants. (laughs) Richard.
3: Yeah, so it's two in a row for Saturday Night as the low. And I, I felt I couldn't give the high to Jones because this is this is Flotsam and Jetsam, so my high will go to any
2: terror. That's right, Richard. You couldn't give your high to the Joneses because you had to give it to one of the better songs on the album. I absolutely understand that. And like you, I've given it to any terror as well, and like you, and indeed like Mark, yeah, Elton. It's just a shocker. Shouldn't be that. Shouldn't be that. So there you go. No Place for Disgrace. Flotsam and Jetsam's second album and the second Flotsam and Jetsam album that we've uh, we reviewed on the pod. So let's fast forward. A few months, I think, Mark, that's all, isn't it, for um, one of... I was going to say Man of War's whichever number it was, but I haven't got a clue, because it did so many. So which which number album are we talking
0: about here?
1: So this is the fifth
0: opening album sleeve notes
1: Album by Man of War. Welcome. The fur, the leather, the denim, the muscles, the sweat, the oil, the broadswords, and just a soupçon of arrogance. I was going to, I was going to summarize this album, uh, which, by the way, I love. Uh, I was going to summarize this album myself, but actually, I found a review which does the job for me. So this is this is a, a review that I found online. It says. Um, Uh, a quick census on the track list is quite enough to show the impossibility of finding any logic on the album on the european cd version with the annoying pleasure slave included which we're not reviewing we're not reviewing that version on this show the progression of the track list follows a path not unlike the ecg of a middle-aged man in the throes of a widow maker class cardiac arrest traditional metal song Hard rock tune, extra cheesy anthemic masterpiece, silly bass instrumental, completely unconnected to the rest of the album. Another extra cheesy anthemic masterpiece, heavy metal tune with an unsuccessful dash of epic, annoying attempt at appearing sexy stroke controversial, excellent heavy metal piece, annoying spoken story, theoretically worth two listens several decades apart, and <laughs> a traditional metal tune. <laughs> and there, in nutshell, you have Kings of Metal. It is more duct tape. Igor, the cheeses are escaping. <laughs> um, this is without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, pluto fromage, an entire cabinet's worth of cheese. But my god, is it good fun! Every time I heard this album over the last seven days. I had a massive, massive smile on my face. And anyone who listens to it and doesn't have a massive smile on their face has made the cardinal error of taking man of war seriously. Because the reality is, even man of war don't take man of war seriously, regardless of the interviews you you see. Now I had the privilege and pleasure of seeing Man of War live on um, the European tour, which was supposed to have merciful fate as support. They arrived in St Albans because that's how big they were. And they played one show with Merciful Fate before Merciful Fate quit the tour uh, amid all sorts of allegations of shenanigans. But I'll tell you something. Man of War in full flight live are a sight to behold. They are just enormous fun. So this is Kings of Metal, released on November the 18th, 1988. Uh, recorded earlier in that year and released on the Atlantic label. It runs to around 42 and a half minutes, produced by Man War and a guy called Jason Flom, about whom I know absolutely bugger all. It was recorded at Universal Recording in Chicago, Illinois. Previous album to this was Fighting the World in 1987, and they waited a further four years after this one to then release The Triumph of Steel. The Personnel, well, that was Eric Adam on lead and backing vocals, and if there's one Really annoying element in this album is Eric Adams' vocals. Um, Well, other than the the tracks where he actually proves he can sing, we'll come on to that. Uh, Ross the Boss on lead and rhythm guitars, Joey DeMaio on bass, and Scott Columbus on uh, drums. For a band that have always hailed England as their kind of spiritual home, um, I would say England has not embraced them particularly well. They had two albums chart, both in the sort of 70s and 80s. Um, so did bugger All. Really, did absolutely uh, fuck all in the United States. Well, the best I can say for this album is it sold 50,000 units in Spain. And maybe that says more about it than anything else. Um, so there you go. That is uh, Man of War's Kings of Metal. It's, well, we're only scoring... Eight tracks. There were nine on the uh European release, which included the aforementioned Pleasure Slave. Um there are eight that we will be scoring because we do not score The Warriors Prayer, uh, which is a spoken interlude, I suppose. So there you go. I've had just the best fun. What did you two think?
2: Well, it's just nonsense, isn't it? It's just utter nuts. It's um it's spinal tap without the film deal, isn't it? I saw an interview with um how are you pronouncing your surname? Joey DeMao.
1: Joey DeMaio. And I don't give a rat's ass whether that's the right way or not. He can come over here and, and do me with his broadsword. We're going to call him DeMaio.
2: All right. DeMaio it is. I saw an interview with him on YouTube and he said, and he, and he answered with an absolute straight face, it, It's straight out of spinal tap. He said, I believe in the fans. I believe in metal more than anybody you've ever met. And another thing, I'm prepared to die for metal. Are you? And you just think... At that point, if you if you didn't know before, this is a joke, isn't it? This is just the greatest camp send up of of metal there's ever been. But there are people who take it seriously, and that bothers me slightly. (laughs) Who do genuinely think that that we should be prepared to die for metal because man of war will? Yeah, I don't know. Musically, this has been an absolute blast. It's um, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous in places, and there's some crap on it, utter crap on it. Within that, um, the standout tracks. A proper standout, you know, and there's some seriously good heavy metal on here. Not flaky hard rock, there's some seriously good heavy metal on here.
1: It's not for wimps, is it? Which is important in Man of War's, Man of War's world. It's not for wimps. <laughs>
3: you will find No REO Speedwagon fans here, I think you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. Tongue-in-cheek romp isn't it? But I mean, it's just its just good, good
1: fun. So it opens with Wheels of Fire, not to be confused with the vastly superior Wheels of Fire by Judas Priest that appeared on that Angel of Retribution album. And it's got an opening that I think is a bit reminiscent of Spreading the di- Disease um, by Anthrax. And and of all of the tracks on the album, actually, this is the one which is probably most out of keeping with the rest of the album, this is the one that I think is really different because it's it's it doesn't feel as cheesy and and by the time you get to the end of Kings of Metal and in fact the end of any Man of War album, you want to feel like you've had a decent amount of cheese and this this it's great you know it's a it's hundred miles an hour riff yeah it's it's an inauspicious start I think Steve I, I suspect you like this more than I do.
2: Oh, I love it! Yeah, and also when that when that chorus kicks in, then you know you've got Man of War because that's that's the telltale sign, isn't it? When they go for the big sort, of, you know, the big pirate number. Oh, I think it's a great opener, completely over the top. I mean, that, they can't even do they can't even do a, a a wheel screech quietly, can they? And they prolong that, and it, and it comes back later as well. Everything about this is just you know layer on layer of of fromage, as you say. No, I lo- yeah, I love the pace. Eric Adams, <laughs> wow. He's a great Ian Gillan fan, but this is this is more King Diamond than Ian Gillan. isn't it.
3: I mean, they, they have sandwiched two songs together here, haven't they? Because you've got this thrash verse, and then almost sort of Queen operatic chorus. <laughs> As a first track, for the first time I put this out, I thought, "What? I'm not sure what to expect on the rest of this album." No, I've heard this first track,
1: and the thing is that. If you're slightly worried, if you're not a speed freak like Steve is and you're thinking, oh, God, have I got a whole album of this? Well, the joy of the title track is there for all to hear and revel in because this is a perfect slice of cheese. It's self-aggrandizement to the extreme, talking about how brilliant Man of War are. And it's just got, I mean, obviously ridiculous lyrics, but fabulous kind of anthem, and you can't help but, I mean, singing along to this, I bet you two were singing Kick Your Ass, Man of War Kills by the end of it, weren't you? It's just brilliant. This is my, I swear to God, 10 out of 10. This is, I could not stop listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant.
2: It's like putting your CV to music, isn't it? Yeah, a fair old riff. To to me, it's not as good as Wheels of Fire, but um, just... I've just got a smile on my face listening to it yet again, um, as I did the first time I played it years ago. Great song. We went through a stage of playing some Man of War together, Mark, didn't we? And all you could ever do, you you just pluck songs from albums and you just finish up having a laugh, don't you? Just an absolute hoot.
1: Because at the heart of it all, you have to remember that um, what real metal people wear is jeans and leather, not crackerjack clothes. It's really important. (laughs) That is true.
2: Whatever that is,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh
2: dear! Remember, they would die for this shit. <laughs> yeah, this is brilliant.
3: Oh, this is pro- just proper fist in the air heavy metal, isn't it? I'd love to see this live. I'd love to see this track live. Yeah, me
1: too. Me too. Uh, I saw them in '84, um, which was their that uh, was their uh, Battle Hymns tour. So they hadn't. This, this wasn't out then. So, uh, and I've not had a chance to see them since. Uh, but track three, um, if you can bear to tear yourself away from the title track, who knew Eric Adams can actually sing? Although he's he's hampered by the constant need to be macho in his delivery because he's a Viking, he's a man of war, but he can actually sing. This is a song you either hate or you love because you either hate the the singing talking mashup or you'll love it. I quite like it. And I think, you know, the choral vocals in the second half and with the percussion of the drums, I think it really works.
2: I wouldn't say it's bloody awful. Um, If I'm honest, Richard said, you know, Kings of Metal live, you'd be there punching the air, and you would. Heart of Steel live, I think it's time to go for a lash, isn't it?
3: Well, the thing is, uh, you could go for a wee during the first part of this song because it goes on far too long yeah.
1: um,
3: i I'd, I'd 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 go for a quick wee but be back for the second half once the drums kick <laughs> in i really enjoy the second half and i love the nice huge orchestral kind of finish it takes too long to get going but it's great when it does
1: that's good i'm glad you didn't either of you didn't say that uh, this is awful because awful happens next Awful in the true sense of the word, awful, is Sting of the Bumblebee, which is just an enormous bass wank fest for Joey mayo and not a very good one. I mean, credit to him, credit to them. Yeah, they've they've done something with a classical uh with a classical tune, but oh my god. I just I could I listened to it once. Fucking shit.
2: Bass solos well, there shouldn't be, solos, but if you have to have one, it should last about five seconds max. Three minutes is just nonsense, isn't it? I mean, and, and we'd, we'd say the same about Metallica, and indeed we have. I think I hate okay. it.
1: <laughs> I, I do hate it. I do hate it.
2: <laughs> but technically there's something impressive about it, as you said. It doesn't make it a great song. How, did,
3: how do you score it? Well, I, I score it ever so slightly higher than Anesthesia. That's how I've scored it. (laughs) Because it isn't that bad. Yeah, you can't deny. He can play a bass fast.
1: So let's move on and listen instead to the crown and the ring, Lament of the Kings. Now, I think this probably polarises people. It's got... (laughs) It has got the... Kennel male choir, who you think come from the heart of the valleys in wheels, but they don't they come from Birmingham? And um, they, I think, add hugely to this. I think, you know, I've written down here wonderful organ um, because it's quite orchestral, and this should be a hateful piece of music, but actually the choral element just raises it and lifts it. I love this track. I know that that's going to come as a massive shock
2: But
1: this is my second
2: favourite track on the album. Oh, lordy. I read a piece by, um, just a blog, by a fan. It was a relation of one of the singers in the choir who paints this extraordinary picture of Joey DeMeo as the choir master when when this was being done, wearing his leather and loincloth in full costume when the rest of the band were dressed in exactly the same way. And it would be it would be preposterous, far fetched, and utterly implausible if you didn't know them. And then suddenly, now you can see it at St Paul's Cathedral in Birmingham, or wherever it was, and you can see this happening. But in all honesty, it's just preposterous.
3: <laughs> this is the one I found hard to score. I mean, it, it's yeah, it's an orchestral Night's Tale. Well, yeah. It's a perfectly fine piece of music, but what's it doing here?
1: <laughs> okay. This is Kingdom Come uh, and, and transitions nicely. Actually, I mean, putting, joking aside, it does transition nicely from The Crown and The Ring because it's got this lovely interplay between sort of slightly instrumental and choral work and the buzzsaw guitar riff. So, and this is a bit more straight um, straight ahead. It's got a lovely piano uh, line running through it. Um, but this is proper Man of War. This is, um, it's not quite the title track, but it's a, a perfectly good song. Mm.
2: This is my favourite track off the album, or, or one of my favourite tracks off the album. And 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 why? Because they sound like Kiss. I just think it's a, it's like a piece of pop rock, and they don't do much of that. Um, yeah, because I'm getting all the things you're getting. That kind of you know, there's a there's a rhythm and a riff and a solo, but it's just it's just dressed up in a nice kind of yeah, a nice kind of pop feel. But top top number, really like this, and and I'm getting, I'm genuinely getting kiss.
3: I like this, I really like this too. This has been a real grower. But for me, imagine if this had been a Queen song, with Queen in their pomp, and Freddie Mercury singing this,
1: it would have been a massive hit. Let's go to something a little more considered. Hail and kill, fairly standard, straightforward head banging journey, complete with an anthemic. In response. I've written here perfectly serviceable metal track, but it's never going to be a classic. And Adam's incessant streaking again threatens to ruin things.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, again, I like this. Like you, I like that kind of slightly atmospheric opening. I mean, it is just a, it's another mad romp, isn't it, when it gets going, but with a nice hooky riff running through it. My one issue with this, and this is only me being slightly pious, the lyrics are slightly questionable <laughs> when he goes yeah, <laughs> like they're not on the rest of the album but when he says rape their women as they cry followed by a very sinister laugh it's just a bit too much for me that one but um yeah yeah but good song
1: okay uh, and the next the next well it's not a song um we've got a piece that follows hail and kill which is uh, the warrior's prayer which is dressed up as a bedtime story read or i don't know read recounted by a grandfather to his grandson about the arrival of these kind of invincible metal kings uh, in a land of war, and they kind of lay waste to everything before them. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking the metal kings might be man-of-war. But it's it's all a bit sort of pantomimey, and uh, I'm glad we're not going to score it because, frankly, Stinger the Bumblebee is going to take this down far enough without adding to it by scoring that. So we then move on to the what is effectively the final track. What well, is the final track on the album? So that is The Blood of Kings. Now, I've got one issue with The Blood of Kings. It's a, I think, a bloody good end to the uh, album. I've got two things with it actually. One is Eric Bloody Adams again, which it's is fine. just, I mean, gone a, a step too far. Um, but it's also too bloody long. Was it seven minutes and 20 seconds long? And it's just. <clears throat> You've got to make it really, really good at 7 minutes 20. It's a really good listen. Is it a 7 minutes 20 seconds good listen? I don't think it is, really. Uh, It's not even a question, is it? I mean, it's just not.
2: It's painstaking. Painstaking.
1: The opening section of it is quite a clever kind of name check of all of the albums up until that point. But the rest of it just seems to be an endless list of European countries. Yeah.
3: Well, they obviously wanted the big finish, didn't they? Well, I mean, what was weird about it is—is is I think it, it finishes at about just over five minutes, and I think they're building up to a big da da ending, and it does essentially stop, and then it starts again and goes on for another minute and a half. I mean, the chorus made me smile. I enjoyed the theatrics in it. His screams at the start. Did sound a bit like Crazy Horses by The Osmonds. I felt it's all right. They—they they, they wanted to go off on a Big note, missed it slightly.
1: So that is Nana Wars, Kings of Metal, Highs and Lows.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, my high is the Wheels of Fire. Um, but the low, oh Christ, yeah. You know, now I'm toying with the two. Yeah, Sting of the Bumblebee.
1: What, what was the other contender, Steve? The crown and the ring, obviously. Richard.
3: <laughs> so Sting of the Bumblebee is my low quite easily the low i think whilst the crown of the ring was hard to score i didn't think it was bad Uh, and for me kings of metal is my high
1: yeah well i'm with you richard i think kings of metal uh, and is the high and sting of the bumblebee is very definitely the low so that concludes our trio of uh, albums for uh, this episode of the podcast um It's been a blast. Uh, How much of a blast would it have been? Well, we need to go away and score them and see then where they end up in the Hall of Fame.
0: Reviews complete. Initialising rating process. So the scores are in, and let's
3: start, as usual, with the album we reviewed first, and that was my choice, which was Aria Speedwagon and their seventh album, You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. And the scores are as follows. Steve gave it a 7.3. Mark gave it a 7.87. And I gave it a 7.72. And that gave Aria Speedwagon an overall total of 7.64. And Steve, how did Flotsam and Jetsam do?
2: Yeah, not quite as well, but fairly similar. This was yeah no place for disgrace Flotsam and Jetsam's second album. Um, you gave it the lowest score, Rich, at seven point three. Then me seven point six five, and Mark Jones, uh, Mark Norman gave it seven point seven seven. That final track, you see, that's just that's just made the big difference.
1: Man of War, Mark. Yeah, so um, actually fared all right in the end. Did Man of War, Steve? You gave it a seven. Uh, Richard, you uh, liked it the least of the three of us. You gave it 6.8. And I gave it um, 7, well, Martin on 7.5, 7.47. Uh, to give it an overall average score of 7 point Well, 7.1 if we're rounding up, 7.09583 if we're being absolutely on the money. So, um, yeah, so those are the scores. But the critical missing piece of this episode's jigsaw is where they've ended up in the Hall of Fame. So let's head on over there and see what the scores and the Doors have done.
0: It's time to put the rock in a hard place, opening the Hall of Fame. So yeah, here we are in
2: the Hall of Fame. Uh, Three more albums added to it on this episode, episode 44. So that means basic maths, 44 times 3. We have 132 albums um, in the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. Um, On this episode, we added three unsurprisingly of the three kings of metal fared worst not bad but it fared worse in as much as it cleared the seven barrier um but in such august company that only gets it um placed 99 um so that's where kings of metal wind up now you go much further up the list for the other two as i say they weren't far apart in the marks and therefore they're not far apart in the league ladder of excellence um no place for disgrace is at 57 snuggled between crocus and genesis heart attack and nursery crime um tuna fish i can't even be asked it's just tuna fish That's, that's what they call it as well i think isn't it just the tuna fish album tuna fish is um 48 um nuzzled between the cult and babylon ad um yeah so we've had fun listening to man of war fun listening to ario Speedwagon, and fun listening to flotsam and jasmine just just fun all around it's been a good show we've certainly enjoyed it and we're going to do this all again next time i think for episode 45. um if you can bear listening to us again ran, rant on about three great albums from uh, hard rocks golden age then uh, come and join us we'd certainly enjoy your company um for another wander into the uh into our vinyl archive on the next edition of uh, Enter Sad Men. Cheers.
0: All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.